0: This is an ABC podcast. Oh, don't you just hate walking on eggshells? Big power rivalry forces that on smaller players and multilateral solutions are harder to find. More's the pity. Hi, I'm Amanda Stone and this is Counterpoint, the program that brings you different perspectives. Speaking of big power players, Xi Jinping is aiming for common prosperity. A huge, growing middle class would help China enormously, but it's no easy task. And while we're talking about authoritarianism, authoritarianism is disguising itself, guess what, as cute. But first, let's go back to the eggshells. Sometimes you have to wonder why we keep focusing on ourselves and we should really look at what's happening all the time elsewhere in the world. Multilateralism, as you know, has brought the world great benefits. Countries coming together and saying, yes, I agree on this and I agree on that. But when great powers don't agree on some fundamentals, it makes multilateralism really hard it means that a lot of states tread on eggshells so as not to upset one party or another. And we might end up therefore heading not so strongly down the multilateral path, but in a mini-lateral path. Helping us to understand this will be Ved Shinde. He's a research intern at the Asia Society Policy Institute in New Delhi, and he joins us now from New Delhi. Ved, you're in New Delhi now. What would you think is the sort of hottest topic of conversation amongst academics in New Delhi? Not necessarily about geopolitics or geoeconomics, just generally. What's the buzz conversation in New Delhi at the moment?
1: Right now in New Delhi, I think there is a lot of excitement which is coming up about the G20 summit that India is going to host later in this year. And Mm -hmm. New Delhi is also going to host the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit, which is also later in this year. So I think there's a lot of this buzz around, because India has never seen, at least in the recent years, hosting a multilateral summit of this sort, of this scale. A lot of diplomats pouring in from across the world, and I think the political class in New Delhi, in that sense, is quite excited about it, because next year, in 2024, we are going to have our national elections also. And there is this dynamic which is being played, that India is now a the center of the stage. It's time for India to take responsibilities. It's time for India to say that we can convene these summits and we can have diplomats from across the world come and meet in New Delhi and frame certain regulations, rules, set some guidelines on how we run this world together. So I think there's mm. a lot of this excitement, which is particularly due to the G20 summit, which New Delhi is going to host this year.
0: Yeah, well, I can remember back in the Howard government when we hosted, gee, what well, was at an APEC conference, I think, and everyone was chatter, chatter, chatter for months ahead about what was <laughs> going to happen. But let's look at the G20. I mean, that developed, as you say, against the backdrop of the Asian financial crisis in the 90s. And its focus was very much on global financial stability, global financial governance. And as with most organisations, there's a bit of bracket creep that's gone on. And they've moved into a broader area, trade, sustainability. Now, where does that leave us now for the G20? Is it going to try and go back just to financial governance or what? Having developed from that under a broader umbrella, what
1: do you think will now happen? So picking up from what you were referring to, that the G20 came in the backdrop of the Asian financial crisis. The entire point of the G20 coming together was more to do with geoeconomics in that sense. It was more to do with issues like trade, with issues like financial development, with issues like exchange flows, and all the ideas around primarily economics, primarily around global economics. But in recent years, what we have witnessed is that there is this dynamic churn which is taking place in the world. The world order is in flux. We have seen catastrophic war, which has broken out in Ukraine, Europe is not particularly very united when it comes to how they're thinking about Russia. They might not admit it publicly, but there are deep differences within Europe itself. And if we take a step back, and if you look at the larger landscape, where are the major powers? Where are the great powers sitting? You have the Chinese who are buying Russian oil. You have India, which is buying Russian oil and saying, It is in our national interest, and we need to do that. And then you have the United States, which is particularly trying to shore up the transatlantic alliance. India, in that sort of a sense, is not particularly in any side, for that matter. It has talked about being, let's not call it neutral position, but it has said that diplomacy only will get us back to the table, will only sort these things out. But to directly answer your question, G20 has been punctured by a lot of politics around it. So in that sense, geopolitics is spilling into geoeconomics, if you may. And therefore, because you have the political scene dominating the conversation in G20, a lot of these issues which you highlighted, like trade and sustainability, these issues are somewhere taking a backseat. To give you a particular example, we had the G20 foreign ministers meeting a couple of weeks back in New Delhi. And before that, we even had the G20 financial ministers meeting. In both these meetings, we didn't see a joint statement which came out. We saw a chairman's document summary sort of statement which was issued. So this fundamentally points towards that there are some fractures in G20 itself where countries are not particularly agreeing on certain fundamentals. And the moot point here is that great powers don't agree today. Great powers have their stakes in a battle which is playing out in Europe and you have China and Russia coming together. I think fundamentally this is about global balance of power dynamics. It's balance of power which is fundamentally shaping how we look at globalization, how we look at economic interdependence and therefore the spilling of politics into G20.
0: Mm. Now, I have to say, Ved, (laughs) you get... The prize of the year, and I think I can award it now in April. I don't think there'll be a better contender for the use of language as a description. You're talking about the shifting Asian balance of power towards Beijing and how it's up the ante in the Taiwan Strait, South China Sea, East China Sea, and the Himalayan border with India in the last few years. And then you go on and say, and this is the sentence I think is just fabulous Beijing applies its incremental gray zone salami slicing operation strategy in all four theaters. I mean, look, honestly, gold stars, gray zone salami slicing operation strategy perfectly describes what a lot of commentators on intelligence in the area would use many, many more words to describe how China is, you know, infiltrating its influence in these areas. But that's having a big effect, isn't it, around that area, on other countries?
1: Yeah, I think you correctly pointed out to what China is trying to do in that sense. And I think the Chinese strategy, there is a certain method to this madness when China comes out and when it's pursuing this grey zone salami slicing strategy. It basically wants to change facts on the ground. China is saying today that We have built our economy over the last three to four decades. We are a military power which has become very significant on the world stage. And we have the power, we have the means to apply this sort of a salami slicing strategy. So it doesn't matter what agreements we have signed with you. It doesn't matter that we have had agreements with India in the 1990s about peace and tranquility at the border. Or it doesn't matter that there is this UN Convention of Laws of the Seas, which is being completely violated in in South China sea and. East China Sea. China says that, look, it's quite simple. We have the might to do it. We are an economic power. The Chinese think that they are the reigning authority in Asia. They directly want to deal with the Americans. They come and say that we don't want to talk to the Indians or we don't want to talk to Vietnam in that sense and deal with your problems. The Chinese feel that because they have the means to do it, they can change facts on the ground, change the status quo, and then put pressure on these countries. Countries like India, countries like Japan, countries like Vietnam, countries like Malaysia. And they then say that we have changed facts on the ground. Now you deal with us on our own terms. So this entire strategy of changing facts on the ground, changing the status quo, Mm -hmm. somewhere plays into this strategic sort of objective of the Chinese saying that East China Sea, South China Sea, this is our lake. The Himalayan border, South Asia, is our sphere of influence. And it's quite natural. The Chinese are not the first ones to do it in that sense. We have seen this movie, if you will, we have seen this movie play out in the past as well. To give you an example, when during the World War II, it was the Japanese who had coined the phrase of the East Asian co-prosperity sphere. And they were not exactly doing the salami slicing strategy. But the basic idea was that we are an economic power in Asia. And now we have the means to go and push countries politically. We have the means to go and establish our stronghold in territories outside Japan. And this was also the case in Europe. And we have seen multiple examples of this. So what the Chinese are doing is not new. It's just that there are implications of this behavior. Countries like India, countries like Japan, Australia, all these countries have their own sense of nationalism, have their own sense of identity, and are not going to take this behaviour lying down. And that's where you have this, not conflict, but that's where you have this sort of a deep tension, this deep contradiction between what the Chinese think of themselves as the Middle Kingdom in Asia, and what the Indians, what the Japanese, Australians, Vietnamese think of their own role in Asia. So I think there is a deep contradiction here.
0: Sure. And so perhaps instead of, fronting up to the Chinese delegates and telling them where they can you know pack their lunch and go people <laughs> perhaps diplomatically if you like walk on eggshells around this and come to their own agreements rather than them keen to see the big multilateral agreements that China might try and sign them up to is that a fair response to say what China's efforts are doing is forcing the smaller countries not what China intends but it does have the consequence to focus on their own interests and how they can achieve them without necessarily doing what China wants. Is that a fair statement?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly what countries like Japan, Australia, India are trying to do. In a sense, they are shoring up their own capabilities and saying that we are going to work with people who think alike on certain issues. We might not agree on broad issues, on multilateral issues like climate change or debt relief, but we agree to a certain degree on basics. We agree that the rise of China has created certain implications for us in Asia. And that's why we are going to pool our resources together. We are going to come out with burden-sharing agreements. We are going to come out with ways and how we can create a framework, how we can create a maritime framework for the Indo-Pacific, if you will, how we can somewhere tell the Chinese that there are costs. If you're going to expand into Asia, if you're going to go and say that we are going to have a lot of firepower and everything, for example, what is playing out in Taiwan right now, the Chinese have gone ballistic about it. So in that sense, all these multilateral partnerships, what they're trying to do is trying to tell China that there are going to be costs for your aggression. If you are going to take a certain line with us, you will have to face certain repercussions. So in mm-hmm. that sense, All these minilateral agreements, if you take AUKUS for an example, or if you even look at the Quad, the fundamental idea behind these agreements is to show the Chinese that there are going to be costs. If you do something which is not very palatable to us, if you do something which hinders our own strategic interests, then it's going to be a very uncomfortable situation for all of us. And in that Hmm. sense, yes, these like-minded coalitions, these like-minded issue-based partnerships are trying to address this deficit in the security vacuum of Asia.
0: Sure, so in other words, the game's up in Asia. Countries (laughs) recognise what China's on about. They can be as diplomatic about it as they like, but what they're doing is recognised. The salami slicer has been seen for what it is. And countries are now moving to have a range of different agreements. You call them mini lateral ones like the Quad, for example, United States, Japan, Australia and India and other agreements. India might have agreements, for example, with like-minded countries in the Middle East or with people like the United Kingdom and France as a way of demonstrating its own independence and confidence and other countries in India would be the same as that. I think this is a very, very interesting perspective, Ved Shinde, and I thank you very much for joining us on CounterPoint today.
1: It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Multilateral agreements
0: have brought great wealth to the world. China might think of that as it moves towards common prosperity. Yes, you guessed it. Yet again, we're going to say something about China and why wouldn't we? You know, it's a very strong power in our region, important globally and, you know, If you don't want to understand what's happening in China, hell, I can't help you. I don't know. So let's have a look at what they're doing with the transformation of their economic structure. Apparently, our next guest, Jacob Dreyer, who's a writer and editor based in Shanghai, he says they're undergoing this risky transformation of their economic structure, but they're deceptively using the language of Marxism To realign itself towards guess what a sophisticated market driven consumerism. Yeah, you think well, what does that mean? Well, I won't tell you, but Jacob Dry will. Jacob Dry, welcome back to Counterpoint. It's nice to have you again. Can I ask a general question first? What do you think about the commentators who say China's in real trouble because of its population problems? You know, shrinking working class. And in a smaller country, you could say, well, we'll fix that with migration. But in a big country like China, you know, where do you suddenly get millions and millions of migrants from and other issues that add on to it? The people who speak doom and gloom for China, what do you say to that?
2: Mm. Well, the first thing I would say is they should really bring that news to people like Elon Musk, who's just announced a new huge factory in China, to people like Tim Cook, who visited China to talk about all this new investments he's doing. And to people like Macron, I don't know. He must not have heard the news that China collapsing because he seems to think that China is very much still a growing economy. And I would also wonder if those people saw that a lot of these big banks, you know, the Goldman Sachs, the Economist yeah. Intelligence Unit, a lot of these sort of people, in fact, if anything, they don't like China. But they're all predicting from the IMF to the World Bank, okay, this year pretty much the U.S., the European Union, Japan will be kind of flat economically. China will be one-third of the whole growth globally. Another third will be in Southeast Asia, but a lot of that is fueled by Chinese companies. And I would just say, well, I mean, you're talking doom and gloom, and here I am in the streets of Shanghai and I can't get a seat in the restaurant. So, you know, you're welcome to come and check it out and tell me that again. But first, you have to get a reservation because I can't do it myself.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, look, let's sidetrack for a second. What's your favorite dish to order in a Shanghai restaurant?
2: I like this dish called piran tofu. That's like this thousand-year egg with tofu. It sounds not that tasty. You know, I think in the West, I never like eating tofu. It's always like packaged and old. But it's a very fresh thing. It's like yogurt. Mm -hmm. You have to eat it like a few days after it's made. So fresh tofu was just really wonderful. So in the summertime, it's almost like a, weirdly like a salad vibe with some coriander on top.
0: Mm. Okay, well, let's get back to what we're talking about. Mm. Where should we start? What do you think is the first point to understand about where China's going now?
2: I think the first point is that the way that the economy functions is kind of changing for a whole lot of reasons. Some are determined by the government and some are just, economic forces out of their control. So we think of China as the factory, as the world. It's where things are made and mm-hmm. they're sold to other people who live in other places. And a lot of those doom and gloom people will say, oh, well, maybe those other places like America doesn't want to buy so many Chinese things. Well, at the moment, I'm not sure if that's borne out by the numbers. Last year, the U.S. Commerce Department reported that the imports from China were higher than ever before. But generally speaking, there's a sense that Chinese factory workers, they ask for too much money now. So a lot of companies are moving their factories to other countries Mm. like Vietnam. And at the same time, after decades of growth, a lot of Chinese people are college-educated, middle-class people, world travelers. They don't want to work in factories anymore. So what we're slowly seeing is that China is going from the factory of the world to the marketplace Marketplace. or the consumer Mm. of the world right and that's a really big difference are you a producer sure. or a consumer it's a, almost an identity difference as well you know
0: one of the things in your article just about i just i had to reread it to make sure that i wasn't insane it's such a telling statistic when you point out that scholars have estimated that about 90% 88% of housing in china has been built since 1990 And nearly 70% of it since 2000. So nearly 70% of the housing in China has been built in the last 24 years. That's Kenneth
2: Rogoff from Harvard. Yeah, it's really crazy, but it's something that you can kind of feel. You know, when I was studying in graduate school, I remember I came across this anthropologist who was writing about Shanghai in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And this huge problem, which is there's so few apartments, everyone's living in a one room apartment, Mm -hmm. you just get married, you can't get a new apartment, so your wife just moves in with you. And your parents are living just in the same room, maybe behind a shower curtain. And they really want you to have kids, but they also, you know, don't want to hear the noise. So there's Mm -hmm. this whole social problem of people who want to have kids, but, you know, there's just no privacy at all in that sort of situation. Since that time, I remember there's something like four square meters per person in Shanghai in 1979, and there's something like 30 square meters per person today. Of course, Shanghai's population has gotten a lot bigger. And it's not just Shanghai. It's almost as if you could say they've built the country as a set of structures, the trains, the apartment buildings, all that sort of stuff. It's pretty much done now. They don't need any more. And that's where Mm. some of our doom projectors say, they'll say, oh, well, the Chinese real estate market is done and you know, they built enough high speed trains they don't need any more. Now you just have a bunch of wealthy or middle class people who may have savings between thirty and a hundred thousand US dollars, who have college educations, who have good housing, and well, they just can't do anything. Nothing is gonna come out of that. I think that's very strange way to look at that because I think a lot of those people who are now they're upgraded in every way from what the previous generation was Experiencing whether it's in housing or educational or healthcare, Now these people are being put to work as technicians as scientists as innovators and you have a sense I think this is one of the things that's going to be subtly very important internationally I think two-thirds of all Chinese household wealth is in literally their apartments Because this has been the only thing that Chinese people have to invest in now if the Chinese government manages to sort of push slowly it's no longer all about housing it might be other things Then now, number two, Li Qiang, he opened up a big financial market, the Star Market in Shanghai, when he was in his previous post. And the idea is that this guy is going to help Chinese people, instead of just buying apartments, they're going to invest in Chinese stock markets. And they're going to be putting their personal savings into retirement funds of the kind that we do in the West. And that money is in turn going to finance, you know, the Huawei's, the BYD's, the CATL's. Mm. These research-intensive processes, they need so much money and maybe they can't get it from overseas or maybe they don't want it from overseas. Well, the outcome is that instead of all these Chinese people like working in factories and desperately trying to buy apartments, we might see a China where you have a lot of white-collar, highly educated people who are working in office jobs and they're investing in, you know, 401ks is what we have in the United States or stock funds or bonds or things like that and that that will kind of financialize the economy and drive it forward. That's why I said it's a risky transformation, it's a really tough thing to do. But I think that even if we assume that the Chinese government will only get it part right, it's going to be really massively important around the world. I think that's why Mm. Elon Musk came to China, I think that's why Mr. Macron came to China. They can tell that Mm. even if it only partly works, it's still going to be the biggest news in the next 10 years.
0: Sure, I understand. Now different ways of doing things. There was a guy who was regularly on the front page of our papers and now that it's happened no one cares about him anymore, a guy called Bo Shi Lai, who was the party secretary of Chongqing from 2007 to 2012. What happened there? Why was his way, you know, popular at the time and then, you know, see you later Jack, he's off and in jail. How did that all happen?
2: Well, Bo Xilai was a really interesting person in China because you have the Communist Party apparatchik. He's very gray. He looks the same. He's not charismatic at all. Mm -hmm. Bo Xilai was almost like a Chinese Bill Clinton in the sense that he had a big smile. He was friendly with foreigners. Everyone really liked him. Mm -hmm. But he also pursued this form of politics within a system, which is kind of expecting everyone knows their place and does the thing they're supposed to do. Bo Xilai didn't do that. Bo Xilai not only had a charismatic personality, but he found a lot of policies that Chinese people really wanted. They didn't want to pay so much for apartments. They did want more welfare spending, and they did want to see corruption cracked down upon. And Bo Xilai introduced all of those policies. As it turned out, in the end, it seemed like he was too powerful, and the system was just worried that this guy was you know, going to kind of have a form of one-man rule in Chongqing, because all these intermediary layers, all the government officials who got bribed and kickbacked and whatever, mm-hmm. all that started to just disappear. And it was just Bo Xilai and the people with nothing in between. And that felt dangerous to people in the Chinese system around 10 years ago. But I think what I would say is the Chinese government today is kind of like Diet Coke. If Bo Xilai was Coca-Cola original, they've really taken a lot of the policies that he introduced You can name them one after another, like the so-called common prosperity, anti-corruption crackdown, the change to the hukou system, and so on and so forth. They've taken all those on. And the reason is because in some way, all those things really needed to be done. And the Chinese government is shifting from this crazy, hectic growth model of like, let's throw up so many apartments that we will dig up the entire Western Australia in order to just make the elevators. So that part is over. And now they need to find a reason why all these hundreds of millions of educated, intelligent Chinese people should support them. So I think the government's starting to think, okay, Bo Xilai was a sort of interesting test case, a laboratory of how you can build a different sort of politics in China. And I think that's the reason why so many of his policies have been reintroduced today, notably the common prosperity campaign, the anti-corruption campaign, and a lot more things that might sound really technical, but, for example, well, China doesn't have a property tax. If you're a homeowner, you'll know that that's a really big thing. Now they're thinking about introducing a property tax. And, of course, the people who don't like that are the ones who own property. The ones who do like that are the ones who do not own property but would like to get good schools and hospitals. So this is that's really this is a really big change. It's kind yeah, yeah, is ironic, really isn't change. it? that
0: Didn't Boshi like go to jail for corruption? And yet a big part of his... Government's rule was stamping out corruption. That's a bit of an, an irony in one sense, isn't well, it?
2: Well live by the sword, die by the sword. But yeah, I fair think that the bigger question is what is corruption actually? If you have a yeah, written that's set a big of laws. Question. Yeah, if you have a written set of laws and it's clear to say, okay, well the rule is that this is your salary and if you take kickbacks then that's against the rules. But after the reform and opening in China, there were so many gray zones because the government intentionally created experimental things. They weren't quite sure. The boss doesn't want to sign his name just in case it goes wrong, but you know, nod, nod, wink, wink, give it a try. If it works, you'll get promoted.
0: How is it gonna work? The idea that you can balance the leftist rhetoric with what you describe as the capitalist reality. It's all very well to say you know, we're a communist country you want to run it like a capitalist system. Those two don't sit that well together, the leftist rhetoric and the capitalist reality. So how are they going to do that? I think
2: that you're right. And I think that there's no way to get that perfect. And I think we're going to see a lot of headlines in the next five or 10 years that will seem like, wow, China's collapsing. The doom guys are right. For example, recently this capitalist Fan was asked for questioning or something. So Basically, the government will need to do these high-profile investigations, regulations. I mean, the truth is that it doesn't have an income tax or a property tax. So China is, in, in reality, much less socialist than New South Wales, you know, as far mm-hmm. as the actual taxes that rich people pay. So if they do start introducing those, I think we can bet that the Financial Times and The Economist and all these magazines that are about making money that are written for rich people, they will <laughs> hear a lot of Chinese rich people are upset. And that's for sure. But at the same time, I personally think that the thing that keeps the Beijing government up at night is all these many hundreds of millions of people who might be realizing, hey, there was this biggest explosion of private wealth, maybe in the 20th century. And it happened right here in China. And it happened by just if you happen to be in Shanghai, your apartment used to be worth like $10,000. Now it's worth $2 million. You didn't lift a finger, but that happened. But there's all those people who didn't happen to live in Shanghai. And so there's this huge income inequality. I actually know this guy. He's kind of one of these like leftist underground people. And he said, oh, the Communist Party is not a revolutionary party. Now they're a ruling class party. And he said, you know, he and his friends, they meet up and they plot ways that they're going to undermine or make some sort of leftist revolution because they think the government is too capitalist. And I personally think that there's a handful of capitalists, but the government of China will... Figure out some way to sweeten the deal, especially for these Americans, to Goldman Sachs or the Stephen Schwartzmans. But the real risk for them, and I think that the reason that the government of China does some of the things and says some of the things it does, is you just have hundreds of millions of people who feel like they missed the boat to prosperity. Mm -hmm. And they can see that Shanghai is so rich and Guangdong is so rich, but they're in a place that may not be rich. You know, maybe in their previous industrial belt that's now a rust belt. And those people resent what's happened with globalization just as much as a Trump voter does for the same reason. They're yeah. also working in a dead factory town and you know it's, it's pretty much the same. So I think that the government of China is really rhetorically trying to placate those people, even as it brings on board the international capitalists and tries to make the Elon Musk's of the world happy.
0: Okay, now you rightly say they're gonna try and placate those people, but how are they gonna do that? I mean, the numbers, that, I can sort of imagine this on a smaller scale. But on the scale of China, that's going to be hard.
2: It's really challenging. That's why I think it's very exciting to live here. But I think the key thing that they can do is if they keep growing the economy, then there will be more to distribute. So they can tell those people who may not have bought that apartment in Shanghai in the year 2000, hey, you know, there's other stuff. You know, there's another thing to do now. The head of McKinsey, the consultancy firm in China, said, The next China is China. And what he means by that is that if China grows 5% every year for the next 10 years, it's going to add as much GDP as the entire of Japan, Indonesia plus India put together. It will just add the equivalent of all those countries. Yeah.
0: I've got one final question. I'm not suggesting that you necessarily have the answer to this, but I know that there's been a lot of reporting about companies moving their manufacturing out of China. But if what you're saying is right and what Xi Jinping wants to achieve is achieved and it becomes the marketplace of the world and that marketplace wants to buy products that are, say, friendly to China, you would think that people who've left China moved their production elsewhere sooner or later going to move back,
2: wouldn't you? Maybe, but just think about rich people who live in Australia. Do they want a factory in their backyard? Maybe they don't. Maybe it's actually Chinese manufacturing companies who move their factories to Vietnam. So a solar panel from China has tariffs to go into the United States. So why don't I close my factory in Shanghai? I'm going to move it to Vietnam. Now it's made in Vietnam. I'm the Chinese guy. I still am making all the money. And meanwhile, the salaries I have to pay the workers are much lower. And as to those Chinese Hmm. people who are no longer working in my factory, they're fine with it because they're... To be honest, <laughs> they have more important and higher paying jobs to do anyway. And plus, it's all getting automated. So sure. yeah. I think that there's a I'll lot of leverage of being that big market. But I think that in many cases, if we see low-cost manufacturing, the kind of stuff we used to think of, made in China, plastic little trinkets. yeah, If that's not there anymore, that's part of the plan. It's called move up the value chain. So this year, China became the largest exporter of automobiles, like cars, in the world. It's bigger than Germany in that now. So China always wanted to export cell phones and cars instead of Christmas tree ornaments. And if Vietnam or Bangladesh makes the Christmas tree ornaments, then God bless, you know, maybe a Chinese person is making money at the end anyway.
0: Indeed. Jacob Dreyer, thanks for joining us again on CounterPoint. And I hope your son enjoys his first year of life.
2: He seems to be doing it. Thank you so much.
0: Oh, here's the rat, look, there are places for anger. Who doesn't get angry? And getting angry is a good way of, you know, working out what you think, shows you what you care about. So it's important. But expressing it in public discourse is not the right place for anger, no. No one says in any public debate, let's go with Mr and Mrs Angry. It's just ugly. People tend to run the other way. When will people learn that you can't say, oh, I want to unite people and speak badly to them? If you really want to unite people, you've heard this on the program from other people, more knowledgeable than me, you have to listen to them and then you have to understand their argument and discuss it with them and come to a civilised resolution, something you can all live with. Anger has no place in public discourse. And here's the thing, angry people are not cute. When we talk about authoritarianism, I can't help it. I think of jackboots and military and guns and tanks and Aggressiveness. So when I saw an article entitled Cute Authoritarianism, I couldn't help but have a look. Now, the article was written by Ewan Morrison. He's a novelist, essayist, and screenwriter. His most recent book is How to Survive Everything. I probably need to get myself a copy of that. And he's written this piece in ARIO magazine, and it's a ripper. And he joins us now. Ewan Morrison, I have to know, what on earth made you think of cute authoritarianism?
3: Well, it's a general thing in the culture just now. that We're seeing a rise of cuteness across all kinds of advertising. It's like the only way to sell us anything is by, you know, this kind of cringy sort of, you know, the cute graphics and the childish voices. But what really got my goat with it was when I saw a whole bunch of pieces of advertising on the net for what could only be described as cute facial recognition technology. Mm-hmm. Now that, that's a high-end artificial intelligence surveillance system that's being wheeled out across the world. like It's really powered by the Chinese Communist Party and the cameras that they've invented to do that. But Silicon Valley is up to the neck in it as well. Facial recognition cameras. So th- there were these... Very cute, brightly colored child graphics, you know, info things that were supporting like the introduction of facial recognition software. And I've started seeing it in my own country as well. We have three supermarkets that have, without us actually doing anything about it, without us really being told, they've introduced facial recognition technology in the supermarkets. And that's the new kind of authoritarianism. It's very discreet. And whenever... It needs to put on a public face. It uses these cute graphics, cute, cute adverts. Do
0: you know? Cute we, smiley we, faces
3: with big eyes. Oh, you
0: know. We did an interview years ago about the big shopping day in China. I think it's the Singles' mm. Day. I'm not sure. Mm. And the amount of money that's spent in the first half hour of that day is unbelievable. You know, stuff is in mm. warehouses all around the place, ready to deliver almost within the hour. And in Mm. that interview it was described to us that the Alibaba stores have, because they do have some on-the-ground stores as opposed to just online, have this facial recognition. And part of the reasoning Mm. is you recognise it comes up on the screen, you've got this customer in the store and this is the Mm. colour handbag they bought last time and the colour jumper they bought last time. So a Mm -hmm. salesperson Mm -hmm. who comes up to you doesn't have to say, oh, we've recognised you, by I know who you are they just see you looking at jumpers and say, the blue's nice, isn't it? And you think, oh, what a Mm. nice person. She likes the blue like I do. I mean, it can be as subtle and as cute as that.
3: That's really excruciating, though. I mean, you have to just bear in mind, you know, 600 million CCTV cameras in China, you know, Mm. and the smart city project that's getting wheeled out all over the place. I don't know how it is in Australia, but we're starting to see it kicking in over here as well. That involves facial recognition software and that's mostly to do with billing and penalties, you know, rather than coming up to you and going, Hey, blue's a nice colour. Mm-hmm. It's more like, No, you're not allowed you're not allowed in this street. You've gone beyond your extended limit of, you know, your monthly quota of travel. That's really what a smart city is all about. So The facial recognition software is very much to do with keeping tabs on us and penalising us literally with financial penalties if we don't do what the local government insists on doing. I mean, we saw a bit of this in COVID as well, you know, with the quarantining. And there was also a fair bit of the cute authoritarianism came in with COVID as well. The advertising and the NHS started using these, you know, Strangely, sort of pink graphics and these soft, fluffy letterhead, and so rather than saying "get a vaccination," now it said, you know, "a shot of love for Valentine's Day," (laughs) and then two of these little, (laughs) two of these little stay home, save lives. Yeah, exactly, and it's all cartoon characters, just as if we're all watching Sesame Street. And once you become aware of just how often these cute graphics are used you start to sense that actually hold on this is a deliberate strategy on the behalf of corporations and government to hide the coercion that it's involved in and it's really just talking down to us like we are kids all the time so there's an ominous side to that different from the jackboot on the face of, of 1984 authoritarianism This is a soft totalitarianism, if you like. More Aldous Huxley type stuff. It's more like the Aldous Huxley, yeah, yeah, exactly. We're not being fed
0: the... What spooked me in the article that you wrote was the comment that in 2020 US Navy scientists discovered that military recruitment increased when soldiers shared pictures of themselves with cute animals. And then you've got one of ISIS Mm -hmm. using the same thing, nice little ginger kitten in front of an ISIS flag. So
3: it's extraordinary, the understanding
0: of the use of cuteness to draw mm. us into things, being more effective than a jackboot, is pretty pervasive.
3: Oh, totally. There's been quite a lot of research in the last 10 years done onto the psychological mechanisms of cuteness. Apparently it all just comes down to the fact that we're hardwired to love babies and babies have cute round faces and very big eyes and disproportionate limbs. They don't quite work and they're helpless. And so what happened in these studies that they did was that they actually found that those qualities can shift away from actually being babies onto objects. We find objects or animals cute, provided they've got these qualities, the big eyes, for example, the limbs that aren't quite the right size, et cetera, bodily proportions that are out. So it's something that governments and also advertisers have latched onto. And so we're kind of seeing the cutification of everything at the moment, to try to sell us both products and also sell us into social policy changes that we might not agree with.
0: Now, acuteness has gone even further. You've got some photographs of Japan's cuter where, I mean, I know that even in World War II people put their own little insignias and stuff on the aircraft that they flew, but it's gone further than that in a sense in the fighter jets in Japan, hasn't it, For using these anime figures the soldiers pose with fluffy toys and stuff. I mean, they would argue to humanise their job.
3: It's funny, though, because it's humanising the job of killing. <laughs> yeah, I get it which is dehumanising. Yeah, you know, there's also been, in Ukraine, we've seen these TikTok videos of female soldiers dancing, you know, Mm. to pop songs and and things like that. It just feels inappropriate, whether you've got, you know, an, an airplane with manga characters on it dropping bombs on you or, you know, female soldiers doing dance routines.
0: The one that I think stuck with me in a haunting way is the picture of admittedly young people trying out a robot that's been made to help older people get exercise and provide home security. So this thing looks a bit like a nice soft white bear with a bit of nice cobalt blue on it, nice big eyes, as you say, cute, nice little cute nose and mouth, and it can put its arms under your knees and behind your back and lift you up. Now you think, well, that's Mm. great, you know, the people will get better care in nursing homes because... A lot of nurses can't necessarily just lift people easily. That'll be good for the workplace. But then you think of a nursing home staffed by these things where they're the old mm-hmm, people and they've got mm-hmm. no one to talk to but mm-hmm. each other. no staff to actually talk to. That's terrible. Well, That's a haunting,
3: it's a hauntingly
0: horrible image in my mind.
3: I mean, it's probably one of the most dystopian aspects of the whole cute technological future. And the t- companies that make these cute robots as well, they're well aware of the fact that they're selling them to people on the cuteness factor. I mean, they have names like Buddy the Emotional Robot. I mean, we know that's not true. Robots don't have emotions. Zora, Sam, Robear, care o and Paro the Cute Baby Seal Robot. They've even used the word cute there. And I think they're using the mechanism of, cuteness here to convince us, the shoppers for elder care, the people who want to farm our elderly parents and grandparents off to care, that it's all going to be okay because they're being taken care of by cute, caring machines rather than, you know, cold mechanical machines. So in some sense, it's a real facade, but it's to put our minds at rest as much as it is to try to animalize or humanise the robots for the, the people who are in care. I think yeah. it's really like a selling point. Like, It's not like, you know, we're putting our granny into the hands of IBM 762. No, you know, it's called Buddy, the emotional robot. <laughs> it's got ridiculous. ears like a bear and a smiley face. So, you know, mm. we go, well, that's much better, you know?
0: Not really. But we're being tricked. Now, Chinese have had some long... Involvement in this sort of use of cuteness with Mao comparing children and workers to blank sheets on which you can just do your work mm. and getting kids to, and adults, to have public expressions of joy and happiness, otherwise you got shot Had to keep saying, I'm happy, yes. this is all good. All mm. of that is in the same sort of cute thing. Isn't this all happy? Isn't this all nice? Just mm. pasting over the reality underneath.
3: Mm. Well, indeed, I think that's the connector here between the totalitarianism or authoritarianism and the use of cute. I mean, I think in the West, we're not quite aware of the fact to which the Cultural Revolution was an experiment in China of enforced happiness. So rather than actually, you know, achieving the five year plan of the increase of rice or achieving the new road network, Mao's regime. They it could use, you know, American behavioral science just to make people happy by having them repeat endlessly that they are happy, you know. So they had all these songs, long live Chairman Mao for 10,000 years. And another one, anyone who sees Chairman Mao is the happiest person in the world. It's not particularly catchy tune, but, you know, at the same time, just the fact that there are soldiers around your school, around your factory. And you have to constantly express this euphoric joy all the time. And also there was this sort of arming, if you like, of the Red Guard, which was basically a children's militia all over the country. So adults were being hauled out of their jobs as teachers, as tutors, as university lecturers, and subjugated to interrogation publicly by basically children. So it was the enforcing of this... As I say, it's like a behavioural experiment enforcing happiness onto people. So they don't get a chance to express any complaints or any resistance. It's happy, happy, happy. All the posters are about how happy you are. All the slogans you have to say are about how you've never had it so good under Chairman Mao. You know, thankfully, that came to an end in China. But, you know, again, we're seeing it's uncanny that the rise of the cute technology is also coming out of China you know, China and big tech in the US. And they do have the same sort of basic idea that you can sure. behaviourally manage a society to force it to accept things, to force it to be happy all the time.
0: Mm, um, I mean, the same thing in the sense of yeah. like, how people are attracted to both, the things people mm. both like. You and Morrison, look, I'd love talking to you again today, but I have to say... You've ruined cute for me. I'm very suspicious of cute <laughs> from now on. Thanks for joining us again today.
3: Thanks, Amanda. Cheers. <laughs>
0: for this week. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you come back and join us next week. By the way, thanks for all the feedback and a special mention to the person who alerted me to the fact that I shouldn't be worried about Cassowary's beaks as much as I should their claws. They can shred you. Anyway, until next week, it's Amanda Vanstone saying see you later.